Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! You're meant to feel Naomi's utter devastation. And you can't help wondering, if Elimelech did do the wrong thing, was all of this God's judgment on him and his family? chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the land of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kileon. Epaphrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. There were dark days in Israel, the days when the judges ruled. For over 300 years, God's people kept turning their backs on them and going after the gods of the Canaanites. God sent oppressors to drive them back to him. He showed kindness to draw them back to him. And come back they did for a while. But then every time they just returned to their old, depraved, idolatrous ways. Well, now they've done it again. And this time God has sent a famine to the land. Just like he had told their fathers he would do if their children ever turned away from him and went after the Canaanite gods. Yes, they were dark, dark days in Israel. But we've already seen that in these darkest of days, when it seems like God has withdrawn and when you could be forgiven for thinking that God has given up on Israel, we've seen that even now God is at work working in the background, working beneath the surface, working behind the scenes, working through individuals who have no idea what he's doing. God is at work doing good things for Israel. He's keeping that promise he made to Abraham. One day they'll be a great nation. One day they'll be a blessing to the whole world. 
We know he's at work because in the darkness, God turns the spotlight on one man. A certain man of Bethlehem in Judah, the man's name is Elimelech. It means God is my king. Elimelech is married to Naomi, pretty young thing in her day. Her name means pleasant. And they have two boys, Malon and Kilion. Sickly and done, or sick and dying. That's what their names mean. So they were probably never the most robust of children. Just an ordinary family. But God tells us their story so that we can see that he's at work because their story is really a story about him. When the famine takes hold, Elimelech makes a decision. He's going to leave Bethlehem and he's going to take his family to Moab. Now that can't have been an easy decision for Elimelech to make. I mean, in those days you couldn't phone up a removal company and get them to organise the flit for you. And you couldn't call ahead and make arrangements to have things in place when you got there and there was no coming back home for visits. Elimelech and Naomi were leaving their wider family, their friends, their home, their possessions, the places and the things they were familiar with, and their land. And you've got to realize that was a big deal. Land for the children of Israel. Their land was their inheritance in the promise of God. It represented their place among the people of God. It was their part of the promise. Having your piece of land meant belonging and being under God's blessing. So Elimelech's decision meant he was walking away from his place among the people of God and from the promised blessing. Now that was very significant. If deciding to go wasn't hard enough, after the decision was made, then there was the getting there. Finding a place, finding a way to make a living, making new friends, fitting in with strange customs, and who knows, probably facing hostility. Always living as a refugee and a foreigner. It can't have been an easy decision. You wouldn't do that lightly. Nevertheless, Elimelech makes a decision, he uproots his family, and he makes that very difficult journey to Moab. It was only about 70 miles, but the terrain was rough, and on foot it probably would have taken the best part of a week to get there. The Moabites were distant relatives of the children of Israel. They were the descendant of Lot. You remember Abraham's nephew, the product of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. As you know, relatives don't always get on the best together. And when Israel was journeying from Egypt to the Promised Land, the Moabites refused them passage through their territory. And Balak, who was then the king of Moab, hired Balaam, a false prophet, to curse Israel because he didn't want them as neighbors. 
And it was because of that that God said, and we read this in Deuteronomy 23, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord God loves you. So you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. That's what God said about the Moabites. And in more recent times, Eglon, another Moabite king, had been one of those oppressors God had sent to oppress Israel. Eglon made Israel serve his people for 18 years. And on top of all of that, Elimelech, God is my king, was taking his family among idolaters. The Moabites were worshippers of a god called Chemosh. And the worship of Chemosh, like the worship of the Baals and the Ashtoreth, was riddled with sexual depravity and worse, Chemosh demanded human sacrifice, something that was, of course, abhorrent to God, as it is to every right-thinking human being. Why? Why, Elimelech? Why are you doing this? Well, we're not told why Elimelech did it. We can only guess. Things must have been very bad in Bethlehem, which, by the way, means the house of bread. But, of course, there were others who stayed in Bethlehem, so it can't have been impossibly hard there. Was Elimelech wrong to go? Maybe he was. Was he wrong to let his sons marry Moabite women? Probably. Was he turning his back on God? Possibly. Did he think he could do better for himself among the Moabites, away from God's people and without God's blessing? Likely. We kind of instinctively think that. But let's be fair to him, God never actually says any of those things, and who are we to judge? If you are of a mind to judge him, if you're of a mind to say Elimelech lacked faith, turned his back on God's people, doubted God's providence. Well, it's interesting, you see, there are two previous occasions in the Bible where we read that there was a famine in the land. And both of those times, people were forced to move to find food, and both times the outcome in the long term was good. So maybe Elimelech knew that. And again, put yourself in his place. I mean... If you had two boys who weren't in the best of health, and if your family was faced with the threat of starvation, and if you were in a position to do something about it, well, maybe Elimelech was just doing what he thought he had to do. Or what would you do if God's people in this church were to turn their backs on him? And if he were to withdraw his blessing from us? Would you want to get out of here? Maybe for the sake of your family? How strong would your commitment to the people of God be then? Was Elimelech wrong? Who's to say?
As I was preparing for this, it concerned me a little bit that most of the commentaries are very quick to judge Elimelech and condemn him for making this move. And I do wonder what the good people of Bethlehem thought as they saw Elimelech packing up his family and heading off. You've got to be very careful when it comes to judging in a situation like that. It's not your job. Yes, be sad that Elimelech and Naomi are leaving. Grieve over the loss of their friendship and fellowship. Be sad that they're going, but don't judge them. That's God's job. Whatever the right and wrong of it, Elimelech and his family are in Moab and they're going to be there for 10 years. Malon and Kilion marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and then tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies and Naomi is left a widow. By the way, the rest of the, the chapter is really about Naomi's part in the story. The spotlight's on Naomi now, and we're meant to focus our attention on her. Naomi is left a widow, can't imagine her grief. She's among strangers, she's far from home, she has no man to provide for her. But at least she has her two boys and their wives, and then the two boys die too. The pain of that grief for Naomi must be unbearable. But the story doesn't focus so much on her grief as on the practical aspects of her loss. Without a husband or sons to provide for her in that culture, in those days, Naomi was left destitute. And to add further to the tragedy, Later on, we're going to find out that both Malon and Kilion died without fathering any children of their own. So Naomi is destitute and she is without any hope of things ever getting any better. Oh no. I said last week, if we understood Hebrew literature, we could appreciate the beauty of this story better. Not only does it have all the elements of a good story, but it's beautiful poetry and it's very carefully structured. And this is one of those places, verses 3 to 5, where that can be seen. They're crafted so as to emphasize Naomi's tragedy. As it's progressively unfolded, you're meant to go, Oh no! Hand over your mouth. Oh no! Hands in the air. Oh no! You're meant to feel Naomi's utter devastation and the hopelessness of her plight. And you know, you can't help wondering, if Elimelech did do the wrong thing, was all of this God's judgment on him and his family? But again, we're not told that, so be careful. And if it was God's judgment, and if we needed to know it, we would be told. But the thing is, maybe Naomi thought it was God's judgment. And if she did, 
I would not have multiplied her pain. Oh, no. We do that, don't we? Bad stuff happens. We look back on decisions we have made and some of them we wonder, did I do the wrong thing? And some of them, well, we know rightly we did the wrong thing. And we think then, I'm getting what I deserve. God is against me. God is making me pay. And because of that, the grief and aloneness is compounded with shame. So will we aside, if I can, God does not punish his children. He doesn't ever punish his children in the sense of making them pay for their sins. You see, you never could, could you? What does one sin deserve? What is the price you would have to pay for the tiniest sin, if there is such a thing as a tiny sin, I'm not sure there is. You would have to suffer the eternal wrath of God, and you can't do that. You can't pay for your sins. God never makes his children pay for their sins. That's why Jesus had to die. And don't we believe that Jesus paid the full penalty for all of our sins, past sins, present sins, and future sins? No, Christian, no matter how big your sin is, no matter how far you have wandered or are wandering from him, God will never make you pay for anything you have done or for anything you do. God will never strike you and say, you deserve that. God does not treat his children the way they deserve. He's merciful. He's gracious. But God does chasten his children. He corrects them. He does it because he loves them. And it might hurt. It might hurt a lot. And if God chastens you, though, he's doing it because you need it, and his blows are blows from the hand of a loving, merciful, gracious Father. Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. God is treating you as sons. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Maybe you think I'm nitpicking, making this distinction between punishment and chastisement, but it is really an important distinction to make. God is not a big, bad, angry God who is waiting to crack the whip if you go wrong. So many Christians think he is. It's just not true. But anyway... Dark days in Israel, dark days for Naomi. Oh no, do you feel it? Put yourself in Naomi's position. That's what we're meant to be doing. But we know what Naomi didn't know, what she couldn't know. We know the end of the story. Naomi had no idea, but even at this, her lowest point, God was working behind the scenes and she was part of it. Naomi was on her way to being a blessing to the whole world. Isn't that amazing? 
what a great God. What a good God. And even if, just suppose, even if Elimelech was wrong, just suppose that everything that befell Naomi was a chastisement from God, doesn't that make it all the more amazing? Isn't it amazing that even when she had wandered far from God, even then God was still working, doing good things, keeping his promise, working for her happiness, doing something that was way beyond anything she could imagine? Wow. God works in the dark times, in the background, under the surface, behind the scenes, Naomi had no idea, and as I said last week, you have no idea what God is doing in your life, even in your worst times, in your times of aloneness, in your times of hopelessness, in your darkest times, God is at work. You learned that last week. It needs to be repeated, I think, because we forget it so easily. But what I'm adding this week is that even in times when you have wandered far from him, even when you have doubted his ability to provide for you, even when you have gone after those idols that you thought could do better for you than God could, even then, God is at work. Even when you're tempted to think that God is against you and you deserve all the bad stuff that's happening to you, even then he's at work. Even when you think the bad stuff is all your fault, He's at work. God never turns against his people. Yes, he might chasten you to correct you because you need it and because he loves you, but he never, never, never turns against his people. Even when they turn away from him, God is still at work doing good things for them. Do you believe that? Can you trust God on that? It's so easy to trust that God's in control of everything, doing good things when you're having things go well in your life and you can see the good things happening. It's harder to trust him when there's no sign of those good things to be seen anywhere. And when God's people are abandoning him all around you and you feel like you're the only one left, that's how it must have looked like to Elimelech in those days when the famine hit Bethlehem. It's hard to trust that God is in control of everything when the bad stuff keeps happening to you again and again and again. And it's doubly hard to keep trusting God when you think that the bad things that are happening to you are maybe your own fault. When you think you deserve it. And when you think that God has turned his back on you. And as I was preparing this, I was thinking, I wonder... Could that be where anybody is at here? You've gotten away from the Lord. Bad stuff is happening in your life. And you're thinking you deserve it. And you're afraid to come back to God. Or you think you can't come back to God because God now has it in for you. Maybe you've strayed. Maybe you've drifted. 
Maybe times got hard, the bread wasn't on the table, the food for your soul seemed meager, the people around you weren't being faithful. So you decided you would take things into your own hands and organize your own life. And maybe you decided you'd be better off someplace else than in God's place with God's people. Maybe it seemed like a good move at the time, but you've been away from God for a long time now and your belly might be full, but your soul is empty and you're thinking to yourself, what, somebody here? Not at all. We all know each other. We all love the Lord. We're all faithful to him. I don't know. It's possible. Sometimes you can put on a good face, but you know in your own heart things aren't right between you and God. Maybe it's not so much that you've fallen into any big sins. Not yet. Maybe your heart has just grown cold and you know you're drifting. Whatever. It's time to come back. It's time to remember that God is good. And if what's keeping you back is that silly notion that God is against you, please get rid of it once and for all. God loves you. God is gracious. It says in Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Hear that throne of grace? God is not on a throne of judgment today. He's not sitting there ready to pronounce judgment on you. He's on a throne of grace. You know what grace is? Grace gives good things that are not deserved. That's the throne God is seated on. A throne where he dispenses good things to people who don't deserve him. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Don't keep running away. Stop hiding from God. Come to him and find that help you need. Naomi had no idea what God was doing. The good folks back in Bethlehem, that little faithful community, they had no idea either. Said to you, for me as a non-looker who had heard about what was happening in the church here, this wee community of God's people, that I just found it so terribly, terribly sad. Oh no, still sad. Still makes my heart heavy to think about it. Much more years, I'm sure. Dark days. Maybe not as dark as Naomi's days, but dark nonetheless. And I sent you home last week to dream dreams about what God might be doing with Thurless Baptist Church. I hope you did. I believe he's doing something good. If while all of this stuff has been going on, you have drifted, it happens. If you've drifted, if you've been going your own way, not God's way, whether you've given up on the Lord or more likely you've just grown cold, and you know in your own heart that things aren't how they should be between you and the Lord, that things aren't where they used to be. And even if just 
somehow you feel responsible in some way for the things that have happened and you're feeling a little bit guilty and ashamed and just want to remind you, God is still at work. And he has been all along. Trust him on that. And come back to him. Let's work together toward that end, that good thing that he has planned for us. And let's be determined to stay faithful to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in this little story you are revealing yourself to us as a God who is gracious, a God who is kind and good, a God who is well disposed in love toward his people. Oh, we pray, Lord, you would help us as individuals and as a community of your people to deal with anything that may have come between us and you and to bask in and to enjoy your goodness and so to encourage one another and to remind one another that we might stay faithful to you in a world that is dark for we pray in Jesus name Amen